Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 21 through 24. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of the sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. So we are continuing in our series, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Times, this morning. We're looking at the three books of the Bible known as wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. We want to learn about wisdom literature because in wisdom, we know what to do in all of life situations, marriage, family, business, friendship, civic duty, and more. The Bible does not spell out every decision that we make, like who to marry or what job to take or what church to join, but wisdom gives us the tools to make those decisions. Last week, we learned how to keep the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. We saw that loving God is initiated by him and empowered by him. We love him because he first loved us. And his love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. In Proverbs chapter 3, we saw five ways to love God. We saw that we love him through the intentional acts of, one, keeping his law, two, writing his word in our hearts, three, trusting him in our whole life, and fearing him through through humble submission and honoring him with our gifts and offerings. This week, we continue in Proverbs chapter three with the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
In that parable, the Samaritan helps a total stranger who he's found beaten and robbed on the side of the road. The stricken man is a Jew. Due to religious differences and racism, he was a natural enemy of the Samaritan. The point of the parable is that any human being is my neighbor, even the stranger, even an enemy. And one of the most profound and dramatic examples that I know of, of loving your neighbor, happened during World War II in a small farming village high on a plateau in south central France. The village is called Le Chambon. Here's a picture of it. France was under occupation by the Nazis who set up a puppet French government and the Chambonais, as the residents of Le Chambon are known, resisted that government. They refused to give the Nazi salute or to put up pictures of the puppet French president, Marshal Patton. The area became a haven for refugees, providing shelter, food, protection, and escape. The Chambonais hid them in their homes, in hotels and businesses, in the outbuildings of farms, in schools and other public buildings, and anywhere else they could. They forged identification papers and ration cards and sometimes helped ferry them across into neutral Switzerland. Now, the main driving force behind Le Chambon's resistance effort was its spiritual leader, Pastor Andre Trokme and his wife Mazda, uh, Magda. And there they are. I'll give you a close-up here. There they are. So the Trokmes rallied locals. They started with their congregation, but it spread through the whole community. It was this bold plan to hide Jewish refugees. And when the police summoned Andre Trokme and ordered him to give up the names and whereabouts of any Jewish refugees, he responded, we don't know which are Jews. We only know men. And the bravery that was reflected in all of that bravery, it was reflected in all of the Chambonais, even the young people. In the summer of 1942, the government sent an official in charge of youth affairs to come to the village and set up a camp along the lines of Hitler youth camps. He demanded that they hold a dinner and a rally in the town square. The people were less than enthusiastic. In fact, while in serving the soup, the Trockmay's daughter accidentally spilled it down the back of the official's fancy uniform. So after the meal, the students stood up, a student stood up and publicly read a statement that they had put together. And the statement included this, we feel obligated to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. Then the letter went on to say that if the government persisted in trying to find Jews, the locals would do everything in their power to hide them. And then the letter ended with this. We have Jews. You're not getting them. Powerful. In a surprise raid, a year later, five Jewish students were discovered and were deported to Auschwitz. And their teacher, Daniel Trokme, the pastor's cousin, refused to, to let them go alone. So he went with, to them, with them to his death at the hands of the Nazis. In spite of the danger and hardships of protecting the Jews, they continued to welcome them until the end of the war. 
It is estimated that they rescued between 3,000 and 5,000 people. They truly loved their neighbors to the nth degree. And in today's passage, we will see five ways to love your neighbor, or rather five things not to do if you want to love your neighbor. First, though, the parental figure in this passage gives his child another little exhortation to pay attention to what's important. So verse 21 says, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. So this is the third time in the poem that the parent addresses the child who is about to fly the coop with my son. Last time he exhorted him to love God. This time he will urge him to love his fellow man. But love does not arise from within ourselves. Love must have a foundation. So he begins with, don't lose sight of these things. The things I've given you, sound wisdom and discretion. And remember from the first part of this poem that God's law is the foundation of love. It's the deposit that the parents have made in the life of their child. It's as if this father is handing his child a leather pouch full of gold coins so that he can go off and establish his new life. And the father says, don't let these out of your sight. If you lose them, it will be a disaster. And as the Proverbs reminds us several times, wisdom is far more valuable than gold. But if the young man hangs on to them, he will be safe. So verse 23, it says, Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of the sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Now, everyone has the need to be safe. It's the second level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs after food and water. So we're promised here that if we will hang on tight to wisdom, we will be safe and secure. We won't be afraid. But this feeling of this idea of wanting to be safe has spiraled out of control in our modern universities. Excuse me. It's now rapidly pushing its way into the larger culture. It's an idea that has been dubbed safetyism. So universities have now created rooms called safe spaces for students who do not want to be confronted with unpleasant realities. They've even created a symbol so that you can recognize them. These spaces were originally um, started by feminists, but have come to be very popular among gay and lesbian and transgender students as well. The basic premise is that you can go somewhere where no one disagrees with you. It's a promise that you won't be triggered. Triggered, that is, to be made upset by someone's comments. One such space was created at Brown University for students who objected to a certain speaker who was coming to the campus. The people who set it up described it like this. The safe space 
was intended to give people who might find comments troubling or triggering a place to recuperate. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and then they had students and staff members trained to deal with trauma. So now in this mindset, trauma and harm have been redefined as the emotional distress caused by any opposing opinion. Unfortunately, if some places are designated as safe, then what does that make every other place? Makes it dangerous, right? So obviously the politically correct thing to do now is to enforce these so-called safe spaces on everyone, everywhere. But biblical Christians have a problem with this. We believe that we all need to be triggered sometimes. We all need to be called out for our sin. I mean you and me, not just all those sinners out there. We all need to be confronted with our bad behavior and false beliefs. According to the authors of a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, safetyism is defined by three things. One, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two, always trust your feelings. And three, life is a battle between good and evil people. So not only do these three ideas contradict basic psychological principles and ancient wisdom and, and culture throughout all of history, but each one is blatantly unbiblical. Instead of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, how about whatever unpleasantness that comes into our lives is designed to make us stronger? Look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is using a metallurgical metaphor here. Precious metals are refined by fire. They're purified by fire. Trials refine us and make us more like Jesus. They make us stronger. And the idea that we must trust our feelings is also foolish. When people impulsively act on their feelings, all kinds of evil happens. Marriages break up. Violence erupts. And fortunes are lost. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. It is only by subjecting our hearts to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can tame our feelings. And finally, the idea that life is a battle between good and evil people is wrong and dangerous. While there are some genuinely evil people who need to be resisted, avoided, or jailed, no one is beyond redemption. The great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to a profound realization when he was unjustly thrown into a Soviet prison. He realized that although he was innocent of the charges that got him there, he was still guilty of many sins. And this led to his famous declaration, 
He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Other people are not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And we must fight those foes with spiritual weapons. So do you want to be safe? Then place your life into the hands of the Savior, not in false human ideologies. Okay, we've finally arrived now at the list of five things that we cannot do if we're going to love our neighbor. And the first one is do not withhold. There he is. Verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So what's going on here? A neighbor appears and requests you to pay something back to him that you owe him. Notice it says, to whom it is due. It's owed, literally a debt. So if you have it and you refuse to pay it back, then you're a thief. You're stealing your neighbor's rightful use of the good thing that he needs. And that leads to our second prohibition. Don't delay. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. If you say, come back later, you're lying by implying that you don't have it with you at the moment. And you're probably hoping that they'll just give up and stop asking or that you might have use of it for whatever you wanted to do with it for a little longer. But either way, it's not being a good neighbor. So we're not to withhold or delay any good thing that we owe our neighbor. But the New Testament steps up this responsibility considerably. Look at Romans 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says that we owe it to others to love them. And here he makes reference to the second great commandment, love that your neighbor is yourself. That's what he means by fulfilling the law. So what are some of the good things that are due to our neighbors? Well, one thing that we owe them is the truth. And that's even if it hurts. Look at Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's only when truth confronts our self-deception that we can grow. This is why the safe zone mentality is so dangerous. It keeps people in a perpetual state of immaturity. Another thing that we owe our neighbor is encouragement. This world is constantly beating us down. Without encouragement, it can become unbearable. So Proverbs 18.14 says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? You can make all the difference in somebody's life by just simply being there and encouraging them. And then the most valuable good thing that we owe our neighbor is the gospel. The Apostle Paul actually calls it a debt. Look at Romans 14, 1, 14 and 15. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. 
Every believer is under that same obligation. You were given the gift of salvation, most likely through another person. Now, you may be the only person in someone's life who has that treasure to give away. The most important way that you can love your neighbor is by sharing the good news that Christ died for sinners and that they too can know the forgiveness that God freely offers them. There is no better gift than that. So we should never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the first two prohibitions that we've seen were items of neglect. The next two are items of aggression. And the next one is don't plan evil. Verse 29, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. The word plan here means to secretly scheme in order to take advantage of someone. It is the opposite of loving them. Instead of seeking the welfare of his neighbor, the wicked person seeks to harm him. And the story of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21 is a perfect illustration of this kind of evil. Naboth was King Ahab's neighbor. Ahab had his eye on a piece of Naboth's property near his palace, and he offered to buy it. But when Naboth refused to sell it because it was, a, it was handed down by his ancestors, Ahab became very upset. And when his wife Jezebel found out, she devised a plan. So they held a banquet where they seated some wicked fellows next to Naboth. And after the banquet, these Confederates lied, saying that Naboth had blasphemed God and cursed the king. There was a trial, and Naboth was executed, and Ahab took his land. This is the epitome of evil. And most of us can't imagine doing such a thing. But we can't let ourselves off the hook so easily. Evil doesn't emerge full-blown like this. It grows in intensity over time, if we allow it. So this began with covetousness, but it ended in murder. So what's the application for you and me? Any hint of wishing harm to your neighbor must be stopped in its tracks by repenting of it immediately. This is where the law comes in. It exposes where we are falling short. Love your neighbor as yourself reminds us that whatever ill will we have toward our neighbor is certainly not what we would wish upon ourselves. So the next prohibition is don't contend. Verse 30. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. This is a term often used for lawsuits. There's a whole industry built around this kind of thing in our culture today, and it's fueled by greed. It's known as personal injury law, or we, some call it ambulance chasing. It is often an attempt to get something for nothing like the lady who sued McDonald's for millions of dollars because she spilled their coffee in her own lap and was burned. ABC News called this the poster child of excessive lawsuits. And of course, there are a million other ways that we can contend with others. And some fights are proper to have, but we need to check our motives before we ever begin a fight. So the last prohibition is don't envy. Verse 31, 
Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. We have all wanted to be in the inner circle at times in our life. No matter how successful a person is, there's always a cooler, better looking or more powerful crowd that we're not part of. And this verse specifically identifies a man of violence as the one we're not to envy. It made me think of gang controlled neighborhoods where young boys see these guys with expensive clothes and cars and big wads of cash. I mean, how, how can we be surprised when the young look up to them? Without the kind of guidance that we find here in Proverbs, the majority of them will take the wrong path. So this poem ends with the consequences of either obeying the second greatest commandment or violating it. So verse 32, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are his confident in his confidence. So if you follow the right path, you're going to be pulled in to the ultimate inner circle. It says here that the upright are brought into Yahweh's confidence. The confidence of the creator of the universe. It's a place of intimacy and trust. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And 35, the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. All of this matters so much to God. Yahweh's curse is on the bad neighbor and his blessing is on the good one. The consequences are both temporal and eternal. Those who disregard these five prohibitions in this life will have a life full of turmoil and strife, not peace. And they will often suffer disgrace in the eyes of men. I'm reminded of the many recent sex scandals here. Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. Those names will forever be disgraced. But those who love their neighbor as themselves have the blessing of peace in their relationships and good reputations in the community. And we also know that this life is not all that there is. God's blessings and curses extend into eternity. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have not perfectly obeyed the second commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, any more than we've obeyed the first commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But praise God, there is one who has. His name is Jesus. He was the ultimate good neighbor. And by perfectly fulfilling the whole law, he was able to take our penalty on the cross. He has turned our disgrace into honor. And now, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we can be the good neighbors the world so desperately needs. So, why are the people of La Chambon so willing? to serve their neighbors at the expense of their own comfort and safety. The secular author of a book on the Le Chambon village said that it was because they had a culture of loving their neighbor. But she went on to say that we can all learn to live that way. And I quote, how do we do that? You learn to love. You can use your religion to help you if you want, all religions, I believe, have the message at their core, the message of love, or you can use whatever other poetic, aesthetic, 
humanistic tools you have. But I'm sorry, this is just Pollyannish naivete. She was right that she said they had a culture of loving their neighbor, but no religious, poetic, aesthetic, or humanistic tools can produce the kind of centuries-old commitment to love that we see among the Chambonais. Yes, I said centuries-old. Pastor Truckmay was one of a long line of pastors from the Huguenot tradition. He ministered in the town's main church, the Granite Temple Protestant, the Protestant church. And that church was built in 1821 over the ruins of an earlier sanctuary that was burned to the ground. But their roots go back even further than that. The Huguenots were a thriving Protestant movement in France early in the Reformation in the 16th century. Many were converted to the true biblical faith in Christ from their superstitious, ritualistic Roman Catholicism. But the atmosphere in France grew increasingly tense. The Catholic, the Catholic majority began persecuting the fledgling movement. Many French pastors traveled to be trained in John Calvin's School of Theology in Geneva, and it was said that when they graduated from seminary, their graduation certificate was also their death warrant because the likelihood of their martyrdom upon returning home was very high. But eventually, the movement was all but wiped out in France. Le Chambon was one of the few isolated places where it did survive. And for over 400 years, they remained faithful to the gospel. This wasn't the first time that they had taken in refugees. They did it during the Catholic-Protestant wars of the 1600s. And they continued to do so during conflicts ever since. They had a long memory of the persecution that they had endured. So by protecting refugees, they were simply loving their neighbors as themselves. Appropriately, for this town of refuge, an inscription over the entryway of this church reads, Amez-vous les uns les autres, that is, love one another. A religion didn't come up with that. A person did, Jesus Christ. Pastor Trochme taught his flock to obey God rather than man. He preached the duty of Christians is to use the weapons of the spirit to oppose the violence that they will try to put on our consciences. We shall resist whenever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. We shall do so without fear, but also without pride and without hate, unquote. Sometimes resistance came at a cost. Some members of their community were killed at the hands of the government. The motivation for such bravery was their primary allegiance to Christ. One theologian called their efforts the subversive practice of Christian hospitality, a kitchen conspiracy of goodness. Isn't that great? I love it. The conspiracy took place around the tables of the kitchens of the farms and cottages in Le Chambon. It was a conspiracy of goodness. It is simple. Christian hospitality. It is offering good to those to whom it is due instead of withholding it. These people did not see themselves as super saints or heroes. They were simply living out their faith. You remember that meeting I told you of, of the, with the government official 
who was there to set up the Hitler youth camps. Well, before that meal and before the reading of the defiant letter from the students, the citizens had one of their number begin with a reading that set the tone for the whole incident. And it was the verse that we saw earlier from Romans 13.8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The students proclaimed that there was no distinction between Jew and non-Jew. Both were neighbors and deserved love. But when I quoted from that letter earlier, I left out what they said next. It was the rationale behind their convictions. And it just shows you where their commitment came from. They said that to make any such distinction was, quote, contrary to gospel teaching, unquote. It is only through the gospel that we can fulfill the law of love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that there are so many amazing examples of your love throughout history where, where your church has stepped up and shown the kind of love that you desire to their neighbors. And Lord, that your church has grown thereby. Father, we pray that you would use each of us to be that neighbor, to be the one that reaches out and exhibits your love and draws all men to yourself. So Lord, we give you praise and we give you honor and we give you all the glory for what you're going to accomplish through your church. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. So our benediction today comes from 1 Thessalonians 3. 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So go in peace and serve your King. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.